The Ringer's music critic Rob Harvilla curates and explores 60 iconic songs from the 90s that define the decade. Rob is joined by a variety of guests to break it all down as they turn back the clock. Check out 60 songs that explain the 90s exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Sonic. Let me tell you a little secret. If you want to end the day on an even better note, get yourself a sweet frozen treat from Sonic. Especially since right now at Sonic, you can get half-price shakes after 7 p.m. when you order online or in the app. That's creamy soft serve hand-mixed with your favorite flavors for half the price in any size and flavor. So save on your chocolate shake today, your strawberry shake tomorrow, and your cheesecake shake the next day. Grab Sonic half-price shakes after 7 p.m. now. Exclusions apply. Available for a limited time only at participating Sonic drive-ins. At Walt Disney World Resort, magic is found in spontaneity. The unplanned, the unexpected. An inside joke born in the Haunted Mansion queue. A surprise stitch sighting in Tomorrowland. Watching fireworks from your room. These memories aren't made from predetermined plans, but manifested from simply being. Present and together in the most magical place. Find your moment at Walt Disney World Resort. I'm Sean Fennessy. I'm Amanda Dobbins. And this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about the very good nominations for the 93rd Academy Awards. Let's get right into it, Amanda. Priyanka Chopra Jonas and Nick Jonas woke up early to announce the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences nominations for the 93rd Academy Awards, and so did we. It was a historic morning in many respects, and there were some surprises and some snubs. Amanda, what jumped out to you right away about these Academy Award nominations? I was right, baby! <laughs> in Judas what respect? and the Black Messiah, we did it! <laughs> they did do it. They got six nominations for Judas and the Black Messiah, six nominations for Minari, ten nominations for Mank. There was a whole heap of nominations. There were some, some shocking things. There were some mildly surprising things. There were the requisite snubs. All in all, though, did you feel as I did that there were a lot of good nominations this year? Yes, I like most of the things on this list. And many of the things that I was iffy about, well, that's not fair, actually. Some things I really liked are not on this list, and and that's a bummer. I think uh, Delroy Lindo in particular and just um, Defy Bloods um, basically not being nominated with the exception of Best Score is disappointing. And and there are other kind of personal favorites and things you and I would have liked to see, but I do like all of these movies, and I do mostly like the emphasis of the movies in terms of the films that got the most nominations are also films that I'm a fan of. Me too, which is unusual. I think for the most part, the films that were most recognized were the films that we most responded to on this show. So let's talk about Best Picture. Obviously, that is the big prize. And and there were some surprises there. You know, you, I think, selected nine films that you thought would be nominated on last Friday's show. Over the weekend, I gave it some thought. I picked eight movies that I thought would be nominated. We were both wrong. In fact, there were uh, eight films picked, but not the films that we selected. So here are the nominees for Best Picture. Judas and the Black Messiah, The Father, Mank, Minari, Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal, The Trial of the Chicago 7. Two very notable omissions here that many people had pegged, primarily Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And what was the other one that was missing? One Night in Miami. Mm -hmm. So these two films were cast aside, but Judas and the Black Messiah and The Father, I don't think... Either of us were necessarily 
bullish on their likelihood, though you did see Judas getting in. And then lo and behold, it's there. I was hopeful. Again, I compared it to the the Phantom Thread surprise of 2017, 18, uh, when we woke up. And, and a movie that was released later in the awards season and that had kind of been overlooked by the critics' bodies and earlier awards shows just woke up with a lot of nominations and we were happy. And I felt that way when I woke up and, and saw Jesus and the Black Messiah across the board. Yeah, th- these are two films, I think, Judas and the Black Messiah and The Father, that uh, have only recently been released. And so that that recency bias that we've talked about a handful of times on this show in the past seems to have emerged there in a, in a positive way. The Father, in particular, is a film that most people have not seen. If you were not an attendee of Sundance 2020 or able to visit a movie theater in the last six weeks, then you probably haven't seen The Father. And so that might be a little confusing. You were a big fan of that film. I'm sure we'll be talking about it a lot more. It actually was one of the, the most recognized films in this whole slate. Um, let's talk about some some other surprises. I think the single, I would say the single biggest surprise for me this morning was Lakeith Stanfield being recognized in Best Supporting Actor for Judas and the Black Messiah. Now, there are many people somewhat confused by this because, of course, his co-star, Daniel Kaluuya, is also recognized in Best Supporting <laughs> Actor. And so we have a film with two titular lead characters, Judas and the Black Messiah, and somehow they are both supporting actors. Make it make sense, Amanda. You got to let it go. You just, everyone, you got to let it go. And you have to be happy that two actors that we really like and two performances we like got nominated for Oscars. I, I Like... Is there some deeper kind of category fraud stuff going on here? Sure. And ultimately, do you want to see the young black actors you really like in the main category and in lead actor? Yes. I In this particular case, I think they were nom- both nominated and supporting because Chadwick Boseman is a lock in best actor. So they're trying to work the odds. And I don't begrudge anyone for working the odds. You know, I think what the way that this works is when the actors branch votes at this stage, that you can vote for actors in either category. If you think that Daniel Kaluuya is a is a lead actor, you're able to cast your vote that way, and likewise for Lakeith. So that just means that an overwhelming number of people voted for Lakeith Stanfield as a supporting actor and did the same for Kaluuya. And so there's no way to sort of control it other than the the vagaries of the campaign. And I gotta say, I don't I don't think I saw a single person who had Lakeith tapped here. And we we talked about his performance on the show. We talked about that character, William O'Neill. It was interesting to listen to Wesley Morris and Bill Simmons talk on Bill's show last Friday about some of the issues that they had with that character and the way that the movie was framed. I had such an opposite opinion of it. I really thought that part of what made the film work so well was that incredible, ambivalent, restrained performance that Stanfield gives. And so this was pretty cool to see. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I also really enjoyed that conversation. And um I think maybe received the performance in the in the same way in that it is um, opaque, but I thought it was intentional and that does a lot of the expositional work and like brings you into the film. Um, and that's a hard job. And to to do that with the nuance that Lakey Stanfield does, I, I'm happy to see him. Me too. So the one thing I guess that is notable in this respect is if Lakeith is nominated and Kaluuya is nominated and Kaluuya has been the front runner for the most part, do you think that there's any chance that because they're nominated from, from the same film, there's any kind of vote split here, which would then challenge Kaluuya's, you know, opportunity to win? Not really. Do you think that we over invest in vote splitting as a narrative? 
I, I don't know. I think in, in, in Oscar's past, sometimes it has been very meaningful and it seems to have cost people awards. And in, in other cases, the front runner in a category is the front runner in a category. And Kaluuya has clearly been the front runner for the last six weeks. So I, I genuinely don't know. But I also, if you would have asked me three hours ago if Lakeith was going to be in the running, I would have said no chance. I would have said he's in 13th place. So who knows? That's true. To me, this just suggests that Judas and the Black Messiah is on people's minds and on voters' minds. And that's it's part of a larger narrative of this film getting a lot of nominations and people wanting to recognize both of those actors. I I don't think that means they can't choose when the time comes. And I and I do think Daniel Kaluuya is just I will be shocked. I could be wrong, but I will be shocked if he doesn't win. Okay, let's let's mark that. Bobby, okay. capture that audio so that we I, can replay it for Amanda on April I 25th. I said I could be wrong. I got in front of it, but <laughs> I will be shocked. And I'll be disappointed. I love that performance, I, I, and I love Daniel Kaluuya. Me too. The biggest shock uh, after Lakeith, I thought, was Thomas Vinterberg being recognized for Best Director here. He is, of course, the Danish filmmaker uh, who, you know, made a wonderful film that we've talked about very glowingly. He was a guest on the show with Mads Mikkelsen a few weeks ago. I did see a couple of people tout him as a potential spoiler in this category, but almost no one again thought that there was a chance that he would step in here and and he he knocked out the presumed Aaron Sorkin nomination. And so this was fascinating. Now, Another Round is another film that maybe not a lot of people have seen. It had only previously been available to stream on uh, you know VOD services. It's now available on Hulu. If you want to watch Another Round, I think Amanda and I both give it a glowing recommendation. Go do it right now. Don't Google it. Don't Google it. Just go watch. What did you um what did you make of this this nomination? Were you shocked? I was surprised. Again, when we were doing our nominations, I was like, I, wouldn't it be nice if we could just take Aaron Sorkin out of this? There are a lot of deserving deserving directors and again, I'm a noted Aaron Sorkin fan. I do not think that he was one of the best directors of this year. I just don't. And so it's nice that there was room made for Thomas Winterberg. I think you pointed out and and on Twitter and a lot of people have that the Academy is increasingly an international body and this is really where you can see it. Um but that's cool. We live in a we live in a world. So um it was nice to see him and if more people see another round as a result, that's great by me. Yeah, I agree. I think the director's branch in particular is very international and historically has recognized people like Michael Hanukkah and Pavel Pawlikowski. And it's it's not so unusual to see a filmmaker um, from Europe or or from Asia to be recognized in this category. Uh, other surprises. Best Supporting Actress was a pretty challenging category to predict this year. And I, it didn't quite shake out the way that I thought it would, but it did shake out in a way that I was happy with. So... Uh, Ya Jung Yoon was recognized from Inari, which was fantastic. Wonderful. Maria Bakalova was recognized from Borat's subsequent movie film. Did you did you see that one coming? I think so. Okay. And Amanda Seyfried was recognized from Mank. Fantastic. Can you remind me, like, who else was in the running? Because these were the names that we were talking about all season. So now well, I can't remember. I think the biggest, the biggest and boldest name was Jodie Foster that did not get recognized oh, yes. this morning. Correct. Um, yeah. And of course was coming off of a Golden Globe win and of course was quite famous and people liked her work in the Mauritanian. But um, she's not here. And even though there were these wonderful nominations in this category, also Olivia Coleman was recognized for her work in The Father. Uh I have a strong feeling that Glenn Close is going to win now because of the way that this shook out. What do you think about that? If that's what they want to do, I 
I don't know what to say. I mean, there we need some sort of head scratcher at the Academy Awards, right? Or else, what are we doing? I think you and I both woke up like slightly bewildered, both by the time. Um, but by the way, let's just let's not schedule the nominations the day after the clocks roll forward or back Horrible. or whatever it Horrible, is. Horrible, Amanda. I'm I'm really pro the clocks being on the setting they're currently on. Thank you, but let's just let's not make everybody wake up at 4 a.m. body clock time. Thank you. Yeah. There, there were so many things mismanaged about this year's so, Academy sure, Awards schedule. We'll get into that. But anyway, you and I woke up bewildered by the time and also by the fact that we mostly really like these awards or these nominations. So you, and, and we like Glenn Close. R- respect to Glenn Close. I don't think either of us liked this performance or ever want to speak about Hillbilly Elegy in any way, shape, or form ever again. Ever. But I guess a large group of people got to make a mistake every once in a while. Yeah, it does seem like we're heading in that direction. Maybe we'll be surprised. Maybe Bakalova will be recognized. Maybe Amanda Seyfried. We shall see. A couple of other surprises that I thought were notable. The White Tiger, Raman Barani's film on Netflix, was recognized in Best Adapted Screenplay. I don't think I would have predicted that. I did see a handful of people, pundits, had said that that was a possibility because of the nature of that, um, that, that field, that category this year. And then Husevic from Eurovision was nominated mm-hmm. for Best Original Song. Were you, are you, can you sing Husevic for us now? <laughs> no. Start to finish. Begin. <laughs> you told me to stop singing on this podcast. No, so. that's not true. I, I lightly chided you for doing so, but I would right. encourage you. Music is important, as you would say. Okay. Um, no Wuhan flu from Borat's subsequent mo- movie film. Big <laughs> would you like to sing it one more time in memoriam? Go right ahead. Um, meet me on the on the corner of my home later tonight. I'll be doing a live performance of <laughs> meet Wuhan me on flu. The corner of my home. What does that even mean? You know, the, the, the that's the most fun thing. Don't come anywhere near my home <laughs> in order to do this really joke performance of a song from Borat too. But just stand in the corner. No one knows what that is, Sean. Let's go to the next surprise. My okay. octopus teacher in best documentary. Have you seen My Octopus Teacher? Do you remember the My Octopus Teacher moment? Yes, I do. I've been told the plot of My Octopus Teacher by multiple people in my life who like stayed up at 2 a.m. like weeping over My Octopus Teacher in a very vulnerable moment during lockdown. And I think that's great. I know what happens. And frankly, I don't need to open myself up emotionally to that. That's like I got other things. So you, don't, you mean open yourself up emotionally to an octopus? What do you what do you mean? Yeah, basically. Or just, you know, human need and longing. I, there's other places where I get that, okay? Fair enough. Uh, My Octopus Teacher is a nice film. I think there are between 10 and 30 documentaries I probably would have preferred to have seen here. But, you know, it clearly is a film that gave a lot of people solace and they enjoyed it. And Pippa Ehrlich and James Reader recognize you can watch that movie on Netflix right now if you haven't heard of it or seen it. Because I think this is the first time that we uttered those words on this show this year. Uh there were no surprises, I thought, in best actor or best actress. Would you agree with that? Yes. Those and are you, completely correct, but solidified now. And and you you have been saying in the last few months that this is kind of a thing that has happened, that these these categories in particular are getting calcified very early on. It strikes me as not necessarily great for this, because there were a lot of cool surprises today, but these two categories, they seem to get locked in in, in like October and and stick for a long period of time. What, can, do you think this can be fixed in any way? We should say there was kind of one open slot in each that was open until a few weeks ago, really until the Golden Globes, which 
given the extended a weird award season, I mean, I'm not going to begrudge Andre Day or Steven Young. Like, that's great to see both of those people. Um, but the, for the most part, they seem to be announced, like, with the festival programming. Like, everyone's like, you know, here's the special award at Toronto or here's what we're doing at Venice. And then six months later, these are your actor and actress nominees. So... I don't I don't know. It would be great to to change it up, but it seems like because it's so personality driven, you know, that and and that's what all Oscar campaigns are, right? Like everyone sees the movies and then you decide, okay, this is like the political one and this is the feel good one and this is the one that old people are going to like and you play those against each other, but actor and actress it's just this is this person who I've known forever, or this is the newcomer. It's right there on its face. And so you don't have to work as hard for the narratives. And I think there's kind of like less to play with. So I don't know how you shake it up um, beyond introducing some sort of like long list, short list, like playoff situation to try to, to amp up the intrigue. Okay. Let's talk about snubs. You know, snubs is a complex and and ill-defined word around this time of year and obviously everyone who is recognized is very fortunate and everyone who wasn't will be able to go on with their careers because they have a great life in the arts however we mentioned no ma rainey's black bottom and no one night in miami and best picture why do you think those films didn't necessarily resonate with the academy it's pretty confusing it's not confusing but i think we were both surprised i mean the obvious thing that they have in common is that they are both film adaptations of plays and they are they are filmed plays. And that's reductive. And I think that doesn't give credit to what both of those directors do with those filmed plays. And One Night in Miami, I thought it was really interesting to um, hear Wesley and Bill um, talk about Regina King as a director of performers. And the way that the charisma and those four people together really do come to life. And then I think that you and I were both really impressed with what George Seawolf did with Ma Rainey in terms of like the movement and it not feeling just like four walls and a play. So there is a lot of skill involved in both of those, but I guess people just looked at it and were like, okay, that was a play that the actors in both films were recognized and kind of left it at that. That's my best explanation. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. Obviously, Leslie Odom Jr. and Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman were all recognized for their work. However, the counterpoint to that, and I think you're right, and I think you're onto something, but The Father is also a play and is staged like a play. And it has a slightly more complex conceit. And the way that the film is edited, I think, makes it a little bit more, I don't know, kind of definitionally cinematic. And it was recognized in best, ed- best film editing. But still, it is a play. And so if, if that is like the rationale, there's something else that is here. And I, I don't know if it's because those are, you know, one's a Netflix movie and one's an Amazon movie, or I, I'm not necessarily totally sure. And, you know, you could say, well, maybe is it motivated by race? But like films like Judas and the Black Messiah were recognized this year. So there is, I think that was just the surprising thing because these films are really at the forefront amongst critical bodies amongst the Golden Globes, amongst all kind of all the way down the line, we've seen these movies, and I don't think either one of us thought that it was possible that they were going to be left out of Best Picture. Nevertheless, they were, which actually, and no disrespect to any of those films, but they felt sort of very, um, not necessarily conventional, but sort of traditional and, 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 and typically historical. They're about historical events, and so they feel like Academy fodder. And so what we get in Best Picture is really a more 
odd set of films. You know, films like Sound of Metal and Promising Young Woman, these are not movies that are historically recognized in a category like Best Picture. So we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, no Borat 2 in Best Picture as well. I'm not surprised by that. I thought if there was a year when something like that could happen, it would have been this year. But the film was uh, recognized for Best Adapted Screenplay, and nine people were nominated in that category, which I think is a record. <laughs> and also, this movie was largely improvised. So that is a, just a true perversity worthy of Borat 2. <laughs> Uh, you mentioned No Sorkin for Best Director, also No Regina King for Best Director, which is unfortunate, though I don't think necessarily that anybody thought that that was for sure going to happen. You also mentioned No Del Roy Lindo, which is just a huge bummer, yeah, but isn't shocking. Um, I hope Del Roy Lindo gets another chance to get a role like Paul from The Five Bloods because he's so wonderful in that. No Tom Hanks. Not, so, not really surprised by that one. No, except for the fact that Tom Hanks is a national treasure, but, um, and, and has been overlooked a few times recently at the Academy Awards, but that's okay. I, he was not really in the conversation. I thought the way that news of the world was recognized was interesting because news of the world was clearly made because Paul Greengrass and Tom Hanks wanted to make a Western together. Movies like that don't happen if not for that. And the film got four nominations, but Tom Hanks and Paul Greengrass were not recognized. And neither was Helena Zengel, who some thought could be recognized. She was the other person in the Best Supporting Actress category, oh, right. aside from Jodie Foster, who was not recognized. And it's interesting, you know, the 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 are we do we not appreciate Tom Hanks enough conversation? I think basically continues on here. You know, the Best Actor nominee is gr like those nominees are great, but again, Tom Hanks was very good in a film, and people were like, "Yeah, it's okay, he's Tom." We appreciate Tom Hanks enough. I do my part on this podcast. And I think like he's had, he's won a lot of Oscars and he's gotten a lot of nominations. It is funny how he always seems to be edged out. I think it indicates more what our understanding of like a best actor performance is and how those races shake out. I think 10 years ago, he definitely would have been nominated. And Absolutely. And I think it's nice in a way that it's slightly reconfiguring so that there is more room for people. Um, you know, hopefully Tom Hanks will be back. I think he's got still got a bright future. Yeah, yeah, he, he he'll be okay. Uh, he he beat COVID. Remember when he was like the first yes, human I we do. knew? Yes, I do. It was very scary. I'm glad he's okay. I'm glad Rita's okay. Me too. Shout out to the Hanks family. So no Amy Adams here. Glenn Close was recognized for Hillbilly Elegy, and Amy Adams was not, which is just frankly, it's that's great. Could you that's imagine if Amy Adams had won her Oscar for Hillbilly Elegy? It's not what you want. It is a huge relief. And once again, I'm trying to say those words as little as possible between now and the Oscars. So let's keep it moving. Fair enough. Two documentaries that I think we both like that we talked about a bit on this pod, uh, Boys State and Dick Johnson is Dead. Both were not recognized here. You know, I thought Kyle Buchanan in the New York Times had a, uh, a smart note that films like Boys State are typically actually not recognized by the documentary because they have kind of like a fizzy pop energy and that section of the branch doesn't necessarily go for these kind of breakout pop docs. Uh, Dick Johnson is Dead is a somewhat more esoteric kind of a film in terms of its structure and its approach. But those are two of my favorite movies of 2020. So I was bummed to not see those. I interpreted the Boy State omission as just no one has seen it because it's on Apple TV. Mm, that's definitely possible. I, like, I just thought that that was it. They just didn't have the campaign behind it, and it just didn't have the awareness that it has with the two of us. Yeah, I mean, that was, I think, my second or third favorite movie of the year last year, yeah. so it's it's a real shame. Nevertheless, that's the, the doc category we'll get into in a moment. It's pretty good. Uh, no Jack Fincher for Mank, which is a pretty significant miss for Mank, 
and we can talk about its chances shortly. But I'm sure that that's upsetting for David Fincher that his father's script wasn't recognized here. Yeah. I mean, there's something slightly poetic about the layers of what that movie is about and its origin and then Jack not being recognized. But it would have been nice. It, It was a nice, tidy little story. So now that we have looked at the snubs and looked at the surprises, what do you think is are the narratives for the next, you know, six weeks of the awards race? Because I, it doesn't really feel like there's any bare-knuckled fight in front of us. There's no 1917 versus Parasite versus Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. This is a nice collection of films that people like. We've obviously been through a very difficult year worldwide with the pandemic, and movies have struggled in the face of the pandemic, but the Academy did okay. So what's the story? That concerns me because there's nothing to be angry about. So people are just going to be like, why should we care? I mean, there's the narrative that's out in the world. And then there's a narrative that you and I can agree to. And people on this show uh, who listen to the show can agree to. And I think we can all create uh, a space where we just like movies. And it's cool that some of these nice movies were recognized. And we believe in Steven Soderbergh to do something interesting with three hours of television. But we all know how the world works. We all certainly know how the internet works. And it's either I'm really angry about this or why should I care about this? And so I do worry that the lack of controversy and just kind of this slightly satisfying nature of these will lead a lot of people to be like, cool, okay, bye. I don't care. Yeah, it is possible. I mean, I think if people are interested in tuning in for history, there's a serious chance for history because as expected, two women were nominated for Best Director, Emerald Fennell and Chloe Zhao. Chloe Zhao, as you helpfully pointed out, is the first woman to receive four nominations in Mm -hmm. one year for picture, director, adapted screenplay, and editing. It's unusual. I I was reading recently for um, someone who edited their own film to be recognized in that category and to win at the Oscar. So it'll be interesting to see with Nomadland having such a strong reputation heading into the race if Chloe Zhao doesn't just make history in picture or director, but in multiple categories. She could walk away. She could walk away with four Oscars in her hands, which would be pretty nuts. I mean, there, there's a short list of people that, that have four Oscars in the history of the Oscars, let alone taking home four in one night. So that would be exciting. I think it would be great. I think also if it means, do you think more people have watched Nomadland since the Golden Globes? Have you been hearing more about Nomadland? I'm hearing more and more about it every day, you know, okay. just just All in right. the streets and, uh, you know, with my local <laughs> FedEx the, guy. At the and corner where you corner do all your while, performances. While I sing Husevik. <laughs> okay. um, no, I'm not hearing about Nomadland. No, right. I'm, I, I, I had a Zoom with my family yesterday and caught up with a bunch of people. And uh, there was not a single conversation about the nuanced lyrical work of Chloe Zhao, which is not to say that my family didn't like it. It's just, it's not a movie that necessarily drives a conversation if you're not a cinephile. And so I I think people are, I think the access to it on Hulu is helpful, but I don't know that it's necessarily, I don't know that it's necessarily the kind of thing that people want to pick apart for six hours. You know what I mean? Well, I actually, I, this is my dad, who, as we all know, is a very singular human being. But I, I got a, a long email from my dad about Nomadland and his thoughts on it and how it handles its politics. And he really did want to engage with it. I think he thought it was beautiful and also and responded to it, but like also had a lot of issues in that response and like wanted to stuff it out. It was great. That's why I love movies. But 
you know, you got to stop using lyrical to describe this movie and everything else. That's like the... I I want it to be scare quotes around I know, I know, but I know, but we have to keep people interested. And as soon as you say lyrical, people are going to be like, well, I'm not watching that and I'm not, there's nothing to argue about. And there actually is a really interesting conversation to be had about how it handles the America that it is portraying and the people that it's portraying and what is it trying to say and how does it say it and what people take away from it. I, like, I I do actually think it's really interesting. But most, if people just hear like, oh, it's like a quiet film about people who live in their vans, then they're just not going to watch it. So Yeah, I mean, I, I think part of that is because one, I'm generally, I try, I, I try to be allergic to ginned up controversies around films that are, that are Academy, uh, mm-hmm. or nominated for Academy Awards. In this case, I would say the biggest ding that Nomadland has received thus far is that it is somehow propagandist or excusing Amazon because the film is, you know, portrays the logo right. and it obviously uses the the sort of gig economy and the workers that are seasonally employed by Amazon as part of, the, in a way to tell the story about kind of what has happened to a generation, a population of Americans who, be, who become nomadic and who rely upon these companies that don't necessarily treat them fairly. And so while I think that there is fairness in that critique, that is that is like not at all what I came away from the film with. And I, di- I felt like the filmmakers were very conscious of the decisions that they were making around that. And I did not feel like they were letting corporations off the hook per se. So as a as like a discussion point, that one has not resonated with me. The, if you want to talk about the way that America has been scooped out completely in the way that, you know, the the nature of the industrialization of our country has been moved to other countries because of globalization. Sure, we could talk about that, but that isn't what resonated with the, for, for me with the movie either. What resonated for the movie with me is, is beautifully shot and has incredible performances and these non-professional actors telling their stories. That's what works for me. Totally. I, and I agree with you. And I think ultimately it's a movie about loss and it's about personal loss. And it is also about the loss of I don't know, your life and or the expectations and and the idea of America, quite frankly. But I, I there is something really interesting. I, I agree with you about the Amazon, whatever. Like if if you watch that movie and then don't feel like a like guilt the next time you click whatever on Amazon, then I like I don't know what to say to you. But I, I do think it's really interesting this dialogue between people who really expect any film with any sort of politics in it to just lay out directly. Here is the yes. moral of this story versus people who do respond to the, like the nuances and the information contained within the film and start asking questions themselves. And it is a little bit a microcosm of the way that we talk about or receive film or really any art right now of like, is this, is there a thesis statement that is directly broadcast to you throughout the entire film like a, you know, Audi commercial, or is there, is there room for interpretation? And I do think that people are on the other side of that line right now. And I think that's interesting, but as soon as you say lyrical, everyone's like, whatever, I'm just, I'm clicking. You make a good point. I make a solemn oath to never use the word lyrical, not just on this podcast, but in my life ever again. Sure. Okay. Can we also give that to all book reviewers? Just cut it guys. Cause okay. you're doing it a service. I'm never going to read the book. But if I give you lyrical, mm-hmm. what are you giving me? What are we trading here? What word will you never use? I, you get to pick. Will you never say music is important again? 
Sure, I hate music. I didn't watch the Grammys. So in that sense, it was music's biggest night and I was not a part of it. What was Amanda's biggest night? What did you do? Um, My husband roasted a fish and that was really beautiful. And then I uh, realized that I needed to get in bed early because I had to wake up at the crack of dawn in order to do this podcast with you. So I watched 30 minutes of the 2005 Joe Wright Pride and Prejudice on Showtime and then took a melatonin and went to sleep. Wow. <laughs> just, just riveting stuff. That should have been nominated for Best Picture. That sounds you like asked. a barn, barn burner of a night. Roasted you fish and melatonin. Asked. The Amanda Dobbins story. Well, Let's keep going. Uh, we mentioned that Thomas Vinterberg was recognized. That's an international filmmaker in the Best Director category. Fincher, of course, recognized in Best Director. He is kind of the master slot. We get a master at least one every year. And Indie Darling and Lee Isaac Chung, I was just really happy to see that many people were projecting him to be nominated, and he was nominated. Mm-hmm. Really love Minari. It's a growing in estimation in my heart. Um, just It's so cool to see something like that. That really does feel like a kind of post-moonlight. Like These kinds of films are, frankly, adored by the Academy at this point. These kind of sensitive, thoughtful portrayals of families and of people, you know, not just coming-of-age stories, because coming-of-age stories have been recognized for many years by the Academy, but stories that we don't necessarily see told very often, stories that are told with a lot of grace and craft. You know, Lee, uh, Isaac Chung is not a kid. You know, he's been making movies for the last 10 years. He knows more about film than most people who are going to be recognized on this night. So it was really cool just to see him get recognized here. And then Emerald Fennel, And she was very excited. Yeah. Uh, she's doing some tweeting. Good tweets. I enjoyed it. Good tweets. Uh, Promising Young Woman. How will we talk about Promising Young Woman and, and its five nominations for the next 40 days or so? Maybe we just won't talk about it very much. I This is one of those things where if it doesn't win all of them, and I we can talk about Carrie Mulligan and, and Best Actress later on, but I think... To me, that's the only real opportunity for a win. So if it's just one of these curiosities that got some nominations and happy to be there, bugs me less. Um, and I, when we went back and revisited it, I kind of understood more of its appeal. There is a lot there that they're trying and that is interesting and maybe that will actually stick in your head again doesn't totally work for me but if it doesn't actually win all five nominations then that I, like i don't know i can't get too mad about it yeah we'll see i'm i'm I, as i mentioned last week i'm very curious to see what shape this film takes in the consciousness as more people get a chance to see it and i like i said i believe this week more people will get a chance to see it because the price point will drop significantly on vod so six nominations for judas and the black messiah that was probably the most generally exciting thing about this couple of notable points about this one ryan coogler who of course was significantly important to getting the film made in the first place by teaming up with shaka king um is nominated for his first oscar as a producer and this strikes me as a an evolutionary kind of spielberg move um spielberg was very savvy early in his career not just necessarily at making films but at collaborating with people at making talent, at finding talent, at supporting his friends, at lifting other people up and giving them opportunities that he felt could make great films. And this seems like it would be really exciting. And Ryan Cooler is still very young if he could have a kind of Spielberg esque role in Hollywood, which is to say he doesn't just make great movies and crowd pleasing movies that have something to say, but use his power and his influence to 
to allow other people to make movies like that and to have those movies be recognized. So I see that as just like a generally great outcome of the Judas and the Black Messiah moment. I'm, I'm really stoked about it. Yeah, absolutely. I, it's just, it's nice to see that this movie's success is, be, you know, that the Academy is receiving it the same way that we did, essentially, because especially without theaters and without kind of a normal release schedule or whatever, it it felt like a big, I don't want to say like crowd pleasing because there is a lot of very difficult stuff um, in that uh, film. It's electrifying though at times. Yes, People responded to it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, and that you can imagine being in a theater and being like really moved by it and that you can imagine it being like a noisy film. And I, it is nice to see that others agree with that besides, you know, the two of us. You know what's interesting about that too is that the film obviously debuted on HBO Max a month ago. And today it was removed from the service and it will go back fully into theaters. So obviously it's going to get a bump of some kind. Theaters are opening, frankly, across the country. I wonder if there's like business to be had for Judas and the Black Messiah in that respect. I honestly don't know. It was being advertised over the weekend on HBO Max as like three days left, two days left, one day left to check out Judas and the Black Messiah on the service. What do you think about that? Do you think they'll stick to that? Meaning keeping it off the service or keeping yeah, it in theaters? keeping it off the service. That's an interesting question. I don't it, know. I'm not sure what agreements they made on, in that respect because they have removed every single film that they've debuted there um, to create a new window of sorts. Yeah, I think that's true. But I think you could also probably make the argument even to you know producers and everyone you have an agreement with of it's six weeks until the Academy, till the Oscars, people are voting, awareness is good, we have this platform, like let us put our full weight behind it. Yeah, you'd think that would be beneficial ultimately to kind of continue to stoke conversation around this film. And it's a little bit harder when people can't return to the film. We shall see. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. Spring is such a refreshing time of year. Flowers are blooming and you're getting your house in order. But now is also a good time to take a second look at your wireless plan because you might be overpaying. Right now, Mint Mobile has unlimited talk, text and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash big pick. That's mintmobile.com slash big pick. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Okay, Sean, top three movie snacks of all time, go. Um, all right, let me think. Uh, popcorn? Obviously. Hmm. Ice cream? That's two. Oh, and uh, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, of course. Peanut butter and chocolate is a pretty perfect combination. Some may even say the ultimate movie snack. You can't argue with that. Find Reese's now at a store near you. This episode is brought to you by Sonic. Let me tell you a little secret. If you want to end the day on an even better note, get yourself a sweet frozen treat from Sonic. Especially since right now at Sonic, you can get half-price shakes after 7 p.m. when you order online or in the app. That's creamy soft serve, hand-mixed with your favorite flavors for half the price in any size and flavor. So save on your chocolate shake today, your strawberry shake tomorrow, and your cheesecake shake the next day. Grab Sonic half-price shakes after 7 p.m. now. Exclusions apply. Available for a limited time only at participating Sonic drive-ins.
This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. As mentioned, six noms for Minari, and uh, also Stephen Young was recognized here. First Asian-American lead performance ever recognized by the Academy. Stephen Young, we've been talking about him for years on this show. Talked about him in the movie stars, 35 or under 35, over 35. Like, he's great. This wasn't actually shocking. The fact that this wasn't shocking was also great. You know what I mean? Yes. That it's just been fully embraced. It's, this is a really... I just, I love this movie. And I think what's so nice about it is that it is so specific and personal, but yet open to everybody if you just want to try it. And it really seems like it is also being like everyone is just opening their heart to it. And that's a pretty rare experience in 2021. So I hope more people get to see it as a result. I mean, that's one where I think everyone who has seen it is nuts about it. And then there are a lot of people who have yet to see it. What do you think about six nominations for Sound of Metal? I, I, I don't, I don't know. I, th- you'll have to explain that one to me. I, I think that this was a nice film, and I know that people are really, really into the Riz Ahmed performance, and it is in a lot of ways kind of like a sneakily traditional Oscar film. And I know that it had a lot of online support pretty early. And I think that's what that you can kind of explain to me that it does really seem like it got propelled via like the forums into an Oscar nomination. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think I think you're right to identify that in some respects it is it is traditional because it's about a character uh, engaged with a disability and working through that and also a portrait of an artist. And of course, like those are two different subcategories of movies that are frequently recognized at the Oscars. So there's that. There's 100% approval for the for the Riz performance. People love him. They love him in this movie. Um, it is, I would say, tonally and and even structurally, though, fairly unusual for the for the Academy. And do you mean um, like literally tonally? Well, yes, but I think that that's one of the good things about it. I mean, I think that this film was recognized in Best Sound and yeah. is the sound isn't extraordinary the way that it it is sort of a ma- edited and arranged and managed and the way that you get closer to the character by experiencing what he's experiencing. But, um, I, you know, it, 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 it didn't leave me cold, but I, I didn't really flip for this one. And so it's been interesting. And maybe you're right. Maybe there has just been an ongoing engagement of support. This movie debuted a long time ago. It debuted, I believe, in the 2019 Toronto Film Festival. And it has slowly built up steam across, you know, 18 months here. And I don't know if it's a beneficiary of a pandemic environment, but it six nominations is a lot for a movie like this. I had a friend who is something of a movie nerd text me and say, listen, I know I'm a mark for this, but I really enjoyed this film. And he is a creative person of a certain age and a man and watched it and I think was moved by it. And I, that's honestly all it takes. And if a lot of people experience that, then that explains kind of the, the momentum behind it. You think Carrie Mulligan is going to win for best yeah. actress? You do. Yeah, I do too. I do because it does seem the five nominations seem like people are paying attention to that movie. And that seems like the likeliest win for it. 
and I would be surprised if it got like that. That doesn't feel like the lockiest of locks to me in the actor category. I, I would I wouldn't be surprised by pretty much any of any win in that category. I think uh, Vanessa Kirby would surprise me. I would be really shocked if Vanessa Kirby won for Pieces of a Woman, and that's no disrespect to Vanessa Kirby, who I like very much, and I wish the best. But beyond that, it does seem more fluid, but just kind of seems like things are are leaning that way. Yeah, I think it's an interesting category because you've got a handful of performances with many, many nominations for the films that they're attached to. You know, you've got films like Nomadland and Promising Young Woman. Then you've also got films like The United States versus Billie Holiday and Pieces of a Woman, which only have their lone nominations are in this category, this best actress category. And then Viola and Maharini's Black Bottom, who's, you know, not to be discounted pretty much ever. She's one of the most beloved actors we have right now. So that one is a little bit unclear, but I'm leaning Carrie Mulligan. Um, I think I just the just the kind of provocative and and unlikely performance from her seems to be something that people are really responding to. Uh, so Mank, ten mm-hmm. nominations, the most recognized film in the bunch by far, mm-hmm. and almost across the board artisan recognition for its craft work. David Fincher was recognized. It's in mm-hmm. Best Picture, and it feels like it's dead in the water and has for three months. What's up with Mank? As you have been asking yourself alone in the corner of your house for like <laughs> since it came out. I I don't know. I'm with you. I really like this film, and it seems like people have a lot of capital R respect for it and almost no enthusiasm for it besides, you know, us and, and Chris Ryan and, and David Fincher and Ben Affleck, a club I'm proud to be in. So, by the way, just thank you, Ben Affleck, for all of your roundtable contributions this year. And um, <laughs> Shafted this year by the Academy. When will Ben Affleck <laughs> be recognized for his work at roundtables? <laughs> Maybe he'll just keep doing them for the next six weeks just to keep making the conversation. This guy, the guy needs a pod. Just get I, Ben Affleck a pod. He's welcome anytime here, though I would just like be really freaked out and have to hide. But I, I don't know. I, it just doesn't seem like anyone's heart is really in it on that one. And and maybe that is the critique of Mank. It is a really intellectual film. I actually do think it gets to a place of real heart, but that's I'm also a cynical person who's not particularly in touch with my emotions. So I appreciate any small breakthrough that people can make on screen. But yeah, it just doesn't seem like people are that jazzed about it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that two of... Fincher's three recognitions for best director in his career have been for The Curious Case of Benjamin Button and Mank, two movies that are, you know, at least in terms of subject matter, are unlikely for him and that not necessarily what we think of when we think of him. And obviously Mank has been described as cold by some people the way that many Fincher films are, but it is much more heartful than Seven mm-hmm. or The Social Network. So, you know, to me, it's it, it's kind of a, a continued... And I, I guess not necessarily indictment, but clarification of the kinds of films that the Academy responds to and quote unquote respects, to use your word. The capital R respect, I think, is right, which is, oh, you made a movie about making movies. You made a movie about the artistic struggle. You made a movie about the difficulties of relationships and, and love and family. We will recognize you. You made a movie about serial killers. We will not recognize you. Um, <laughs> and... I, I think about, you know, I thought about this a lot last year when when Quentin Tarantino was nominated and, and ultimately did not win for Best Director. And I think about it with Fincher and a lot of the people who are kind of objects of obsession on this show and when they're going to win and how they might not win ever, 
You know, we talk about Spike Lee in this category. We talk about Sofia Coppola in this category. You know, some of those Gen X filmmakers have been recognized. Mm-hmm. Soderbergh has been recognized. But not that many. Paul Thomas Anderson has not been recognized. You know, that this whole wave, this whole these hugely influential people on me, on my taste, on my point of view, on the things that I really emotionally respond to, the Academy is not into, and yet I continue to be obsessed with the Academy Awards, and I can't figure it out. Well, number one, that's the definition of Gen X right there, right? It, again, it would be very weird if they were all embraced by the institution. Then we would be like, who are you, and how do we relate to you, and how do we relate to art? Because it is the defining characteristic of their approach to the world, and it definitely influenced the both of us. And we do a whole podcast about the Academy, but we also call it really dumb all the time. There's that tension between wanting recognition and also realizing how silly it is. I, some of those are indicative of, of patterns and outlooks, and some of it is just getting unlucky. I mean, you know, Tarantino lost to Bong Joon-ho. Like, I, that's just once upon a time in Hollywood had to go up against Parasite. That's, that sucks for once upon a time in Hollywood, but Parasite is, a, you know, a once-in-a-lifetime achievement. So the the Fincher one feels like a real, um, a, like there's a gap between the credit that they're willing to give him and the credit that you and I think that he deserves. And a lot of it does really, it, it feels a little bit because his films are quote, um, maybe closed off is the, the word, which, which I appreciate. I, I love boundaries, but that many people can't access. And, and also I think, because of of subject matter and just I, I, I don't know I, I think people respect him as a craftsman but maybe not as a an emotions person and at the end of the day emotions always trump at the Oscars yeah and I feel like with no best film editing or original screenplay yeah. it's very possible that this movie is just the Irishman of 2021 and that it walks away with zero Oscars which you know that seems weird for my favorite movie of the year but nevertheless um what do you think about the way that the Academy recognized Netflix this year? So Netflix has the most nominations, but if you kind of look back at everything we just said in terms of who we think is going to win, and also, you, I mean, just the main conversation, 10 nominations, and it's not going to win a single one. Just like The Irishman, also a Netflix film, which didn't win a single Oscar. And I think we thought early lockdown they're still doing the Oscars. Well, this is Netflix's year. They're finally going to win. They have the machinery. They have the Oscar campaign. Like, this has got to be it. And like, Netflix is not going to win Best Picture again. Is Netflix ever going to win Best Picture? Probably. I don't know. I don't know. know. They had an absolutely stacked slate this year. And they had a huge opportunity. And they obviously did did dominate the field in terms of nominations. Um, And they, they, they didn't just develop and produce films. They went out and acquired films, like Pieces of a Woman in this race and it i agree it does not seem like it's going to happen and now what you've got is amazon nipping at their heels and apple tv plus got two nominations with wolf walkers and best sound for greyhound you know like and then all of a sudden you know there's hulu is premiering nomadland to america and disney has a chance to win its first oscar in many years and soul debuted on disney plus and the landscape is different now Judas and the Black Messiah premiered on HBO Max. I got six nominations. Like, I, I don't know. I, Netflix is, of course, the absolute dominant streamer in the space and is, was, was a decade ahead of every other movie studio in this respect. But 
I don't know if it's kind of residual hang-up anxiety around what Netflix did to the industry or if it just happens to be, as you pointed out with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Parasite, just kind of the, the way the cookie crumbles this year. But I agree. It does not seem like this is going to be their year either. Between Roma, The Irishman, Marriage Story, which you and I just loved, even though I probably never had a chance, but whatever. I just want to remind everyone that Netflix did give us Marriage Story. Thank you, Netflix. And then Mank this year. I mean, I don't know how you pick better movies. Those are those are They've amazing. Done <laughs> They've done like, great. I, I, you know, they make a lot of junk that I have to like read about on Instagram that I don't care about. But they also just pick some of the most moving and beautiful and accomplished films of the last five years. So I don't even know what I would tell them strategy wise. I like I. It just seems like it's not shaking out. And you do have to start to wonder whether there is just kind of some inherent, I guess I I won't vote for this received, you know, favorite, or I won't vote for the big guy because it's Netflix. The reason that doesn't wash with me is that the Academy is so big now that the Academy is pushing towards 9,000, 10,000 members. And many people in the industry and in the Academy are benefiting from the opportunities that Netflix provides. Netflix is by far the biggest and most active studio in Hollywood. They make the most movies out of anybody. And that means a lot of people get paid by Netflix. So the idea of this like residual resentment, now certainly among like 80-year-olds, I get that. But like think about people like uh, Chloe Zhao and Thomas Vinterberg being recognized in Best Director. Like the game changed. I agree with you. I wonder if it's less resentment and more really a sea change kind of in the way that voters think about best picture. And I think you talk a lot about how moonlight changed everything in the Academy. And I think like it did and it didn't, but in terms of what voters think a a best picture winner is, and really also kind of that the smaller film, the underdog, this movie that we kind of have to advocate for should actually be the best picture winner. And that is what we should do with the Oscars. There's definitely a strain of that rising in the Academy. And if you're produced or distributed by Netflix, you're not, you don't need advocating. Like there's a giant company advocating for you big time. It's a good point. So I somewhat glibly pointed out that the, we felt like the nominations were good this year. They're certainly historic, but are they authentically good relative to what was out in the world? You know, there were film, we talked about Delroy. There were films like First Cow, which we hoped would get recognized 11 months ago, like Fools, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. There was this discussion in March, April, May of 2020, like this is the year for these smaller films to sneak in. And in some ways, Minari, Sound of Metal, Promising Young Woman, these are these smaller films. They're just not necessarily the ones that we had earmarked. So it, was this good? Was this good for the Academy? Was this good for the state of film? What's happened over the last year and the way that the Academy has recognized it? What's happened over the last year is not good for the state of film, for the Academy, for you and me, for the world but, at large. But you could come to my corner and hear me <laughs> like, sing Wuhan flu. I, I, no, I... I think, no, it's not good, but also we have to make it good. Like, you, we have to really just change the narrative here within our little world, and then we have to go out and really uh, be obnoxious to other people about, these are actually good films, and it's cool that they're getting recognized, and this is a silver lining in what was a crappy year. And if you haven't seen the movies well, 
go watch them because now theaters are apparently opening. And so there are a multitude of ways to watch all of these movies. And um, what else are you going to do with your time? Do I think that these are the eight best films that were released last year objectively? Like, no, of course, but that's never the case. Do I think within context, it's like a pretty good mix of films we really liked, films other people have liked and or seen on a relative scale again, because, you know, the last year and also no one watches movies. Yeah, I do. And I think if it had been First Cow, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, Minari, Sound of Metal, Promising Young Woman, I just lyrical is the only thing that you could say. And what about Bad Boys for Life? I mean, that would be fun. It would be great to have Will Smith at the Oscars. I agree. But he won't be for Bad Boys for Life anyway. Though maybe he'll present. Let, let me ask you a, a personal question. Yeah. When we're doing this podcast and I present a question with a fallacious premise, mm-hmm. I like, are you infuriated? Are you like, oh, thanks for teeing me up. I really appreciate it. What's your reaction? Just yelling no a lot, I guess. <laughs> that's kind of the premise of this, that's right? That's inside of you as well? That's how you're feeling inside? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's both intellectually. I know that you're just constructing a podcast where you say something and I'm like, Sean, you're a dummy. And that's like part of the vibe at this point. Um, but you're deconstructing I, in real time. Yeah, but I, but I think you do that because in part, you know that no matter how aware I am of like the puppet strings and how like in, intellectually I understand that you are you know, setting things up for them to be debunked. Like, I'll just get mad at you. Um, I can't help myself. So that no does come from deep within my heart. Yeah. Let's close with this. It has just seemed like for three months that Nomadland is going to win and might even sweep a whole bunch of Oscars. It's possible Mm -hmm. that, like we said, Chloe Zhao wins four Academy Awards. It's possible Frances McDormand is recognized for her work. It's possible that this is the, the... I don't know, the 40-foot elephant in the room. And, you know, in the past, we've thought, oh, maybe 1917 is dominant and can't be beat. Maybe it's on a collision course with history and, you know, Parasite and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood can take a back seat. Or, you know, there's no way the Academy could really recognize Green Book. Is this actually going to happen? And then it does happen. But I don't really feel like any of the seven other films that are nominated in Best Picture have a chance to beat Nomadland. What do you think? I think they do only in the sense that we've been surprised in several of the last years. I mean, we were surprised last year in a great way that Parasite won. We were surprised when Moonlight being La La Land. Uh, I was still slightly surprised when Shape of Water won. What else? And and we were disappointed, but possibly not surprised that Green Book won. And even within that conversation, it was, will this sort of, quote, traditional, quote, Oscar Beatty movie win or can a, can a spoiler, can something like Roma um, change what we understand about Best Picture and, you know, change how Netflix interacts with the Oscars. So I don't really feel like Nomadland is such a traditional movie that it feels really obvious. I mean, I agree with that, you know, and it is also like if Minari wins, we would be really surprised, but it does seem like a lot of people like that movie. And we do now have precedent for like a smaller personal film with really wide appeal, kind of surprising everyone at the Oscars. So I think that I think probably Nomadland will win just because 
the Oscar season is so constrained. You know, there was a Brooks Barnes piece in the New York Times today about yesterday about campaigning and how do you do a campaign season when there is and how do you like kind of do the whole Oscar thing and get people involved when you can't do anything in person and you just got to like have a Zoom. And um, I recommend the piece just to learn how much various things uh, cost during award season because it's a lot of money. But it does seem like that is so constrained, that whole apparatus it's still going to be so limited this year that it's just kind of like Nomadland. I recognize that Nomadland seems like the consensus, but okay. we could so, be wrong. So pop quiz then power yeah. rank power rank them right now from okay. least likely to most likely to win best picture. Okay, uh, don't Mank, overthink it. Just dig Mank in. Least likely. Oh and my god. Then, least likely. Yeah, you. We just <laughs> did a whole thing about this. I went, okay. Oh my, oh my god. god. Why least are you getting likely. so mad at me for telling you the truth that you just? Uh, no one's gonna vote for it. I like you can vote least for it. Likely. Let's, okay. Go let's ahead. get you Keep a ballot. Going. What if we just turn this Oscar campaign into get you into the academy? I think rather than get me a ballot, I should just be in charge of everything. What do you think? Okay. Just no. just let me choose all the nominees. Okay. Choose all the winners. Okay. Um, the Shawnees? Can we do the Shawnees this year? You can do them. You want to do them right now? Would you like to we, hand we them out? We do them every week. Okay. I'm well, like I, Thanos this, Thanos that. You know, he's the winner of every award. Okay. That's, wow. The Shawnees suck. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, take, keep going. Okay. Mank is number eight. What else? Mank is number eight. Then, oh God, I don't know. The father number seven? Okay. A promising young woman, six. Sound of Metal, five. Wait, I had it in my head and I lost it. Judas and the Black Messiah, four. I honestly, Trial of Chicago, seven, three, Minari, two, Nomadland, one. Do you, because of the Sorkin snub? Yeah. And I just, because Minari is another movie that people are still just seeing. And I, and I think it's pretty irresistible. I agree with you. This is been... wait. Can you do your rankings? No, I'm I, I, with the exception of maybe moving Mank to like six. I, I think you're really close. I mean, I think you have a good feel for it. Um, I think that there definitely will be things that we don't see coming that are going to unfurl in mm-hmm. the next forty days. You know, maybe we'll find out that um, I don't know. Don't. Riz Ahmed like saved a kitten from a tree, and then all of a sudden mm-hmm. he surges in his race. You know, there's all kinds of ways to manipulate the the the, the settings here. Um, Generally speaking, this is a, a solid set in the face of a pandemic. And I, I'm not going to pretend to have any faux outrage aside from my deep and eternal sadness for David Fincher. Okay. I accept it. I think that we just got to, if you're still listening to this podcast, go see a movie you haven't seen. Go tell a friend to see a movie that you haven't seen. And just spend the next 40 days practicing saying awards shows are really important. And I love watching them live. <laughs> Speaking of movies that we've never seen, please stay tuned to the big picture because later this week we will be watching a movie oh we've God. never seen. I, I, I'm t- I didn't know what you were throwing to and I was like, oh, is there a movie I haven't seen? There sure is. It's called Zack Snyder's Justice League, a.k.a. The Snyder Cut. And me and Amanda and Chris Ryan will be doing our first ever big picture live commentary. We will be watching this four hour and one minute film together with our poor producer, Bobby Wagner, and talking about the film. And we encourage you to watch it with us, which is streaming on HBO Max on Friday. 
Amanda, are you excited for this Academy Award-winning performance we are sure to give on that podcast? (laughs) I'm excited to learn what Justice League is about. Well, it's definitely, um, well, it's about truth. And we're going to find out about the truth. Great, and a society. Cool. It's truly about living in a society. This has been a society podcast. Thank you to Bobby Wagner. And we'll see you later this week for the Justice League. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.